0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another very special end-of-summer Ignite Radio Live.
1: Over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio, you are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter and a very special guest that we will introduce in a moment. So, folks, last
0: week we opened the door to conversation. We want respectful conversation about... Where we're at in the Church, the Catholic Church today, certainly the crisis that has been playing out for a number of weeks now, our awakening to a crisis, that's already existed, right? It's revealing some things below the surface that give us the benefit of reflection and response. And many articles, hopefully you've been attuned to some of these things, because they do affect, fundamentally affect, the ultimate purpose why we exist on this earth, to become saints and make saints and go to heaven. It's all about the purpose of the Catholic Church. And, you know, I would just pose the question to you, you know, if you became aware of your local fire station, that at that local fire station, you found out that some of the firemen were actually arsonists, right? They're actually starting fires and that they were being additionally groomed, if you will, to be arsonists within that context by some of the leadership. I think all of us would have a level of outrage. We'd have a level of there's something really fundamentally wrong here. Well, folks, to use that metaphor, we are dealing, certainly there's a holy fire, but an unholy fire is that are being lit and have been lit that have profoundly, in fact, impacted the church and the way many think about Jesus Christ and his church. So that's what we're talking about tonight. We're calling it Roots of Revival. We want to have a positive take. That's why we have this positive worship song. That God is working amidst even crises, even uh, by His permissive will, by allowing all of us a part of this. Right? We've chosen ways that are not of God, and uh, it's impacted others. It's impacted us, and uh, and we want to look into that. We want to see God's. God's purpose and his will in there. So we're taking a positive take on this, but we've got to be really honest and look at it straightforward. Um, in the book Good to Great, the author Jim Collins, you know, kind of talked about the uh, Stockdale Paradox, the Stockdale Paradox. This is a quality that distinguishes merely good companies from Great companies, and let's not consider the church as greater than a company, right? But as an organization, let's consider it. The Stockdale Paradox, again, Admiral Stockdale, he was in a concentration camp, and they asked him, why did you survive when others did not survive? And he said, well, really two things. One, I had a lively expectation of a good outcome. So his heart, his mind was fixed on hope of an outcome that seemed unlikely, but optimism, a positive expectation. But secondly, he dealt with the brutal facts. Folks, we got to deal with the brutal facts in our church, and I dare say, as the church includes all the baptized, that certainly means us individually, in our marriages, and in our families. So tonight I'm going to say again, it's rated PG-14, folks. We're talking about some issues that are very troubling, uh, particularly in the realm of sexuality. So if you have those younger younger than age 14, maybe you want to consider, you know, showing them the other room and let them read a good Tolkien book or something where there's less violence and stuff. I'm kidding. Um, So folks, if you want to hear last week's program, we interviewed Peter Herbeck, who gave us a phenomenal perspective. I might even say eschatological perspective. He gave us an insight into how things are playing out now from God's vantage. The, uh, The battle, right, between the enemy, who is insanely jealous of us, wants us to deny our identity, wants us to be, distract us from our identity. And uh, we're at battle, not against flesh and blood, principalities and powers, working through humanity. And Peter gave us that perspective. If you want to hear that, it's been, uh, I guess I didn't even say viral, it's being shared throughout the world. Um, go to IgniteRadioLive.com, Ignite Live. Dot com. There you can hear that podcast. Now it's a podcast. And after tonight, you'll be able to hear our guest, uh, Eric Salmons. Blessed to have him with us. And uh, to set the stage for Eric, um, he's a good brother in Christ. We knew him at Miami of Ohio. You will see, if you search through our podcast, a great interview with him on his uh, new book, a fairly new book, The Old Evangelization. We'll weave into, I'm sure tonight, some of the themes from that insight, the old evangelization. Eric is a convert to the Catholic faith um, through my brother and through others that uh, really, I think, shared awesome, vibrant community, sword sharpening swords, iron sharpening iron. And uh, he's written a number of books. You can find out more about Eric as an author, speaker at ericsammons.com. Most impressive, though, is he is a husband, devout Catholic husband and father of seven beautiful kids, ranging in age from 21 down to three how you doing tonight eric
2: oh i'm doing great greg thanks so much for having me on
0: Awesome. So, Eric, you know, we're going to get right to this. Uh, we're obviously talking about this crisis and want to look at it, We want to look at the brutal facts, want to look at the reality, and uh, we want to recognize in there how we might respond, in particular as lay people, So in there, we believe our roots of revival. Historically, we know that's the way God works. So, Eric, I'm just going to put the pressure on you right here at the outset. If somebody's tuning in tonight and they're on vacation for two weeks and, and maybe much more blessed as a result of it... Uh, uh, and have no idea about the McCarrick scandal, about what it means for the hierarchy in the Church and everything else, set the stage for us. What what happened? What's going on?
2: Well, really, this is the culmination of many decades of a crisis that was hidden for so long. I think a lot, you know, almost all Catholics know, of course, in 2002, is when a lot of this came to light, that there were many priests, and other clergy who were involved in the sexual abuse of children, and they did studies, and the the vast majority of that abuse was actually of of a homosexual nature, uh, abusing teenage boys. And there were some lone voices before 2002 that were trying to say something, trying to let this get out, but they were silenced. And 2002 finally blew up in Boston and other places. And so the bishops, in response, they decided, okay, they met in Dallas, and they said, okay, what we're going to do is... We are going to have what they call the Dallas Charter, and it's to be policies put in place so that this wouldn't happen anymore. This wouldn't happen again. Now, there are, there's no question that after 2002, I would at least argue that things did get better in many ways. Uh, working in a diocese after 2002, I know that there were uh, procedures in place to try to prevent these things. But at the same time, I think that it was a, a flawed document for a number of reasons. No, the first is it is mostly focused, it was obviously written by lawyers, for lawyers, and it wasn't really a, a truly Christian document that was more looking at the focus of the problem, which is sin, which is, you know, conversion, mm-hmm. repentance, those type of things. Well, then, fast forward now 16 years. And all of a sudden, one of the main voices back in 2002 and following, uh, speaking for the American bishops on how we're going to prevent this from happening, how we're, we're so sad about this, was Cardinal McCarrick of Washington, D.C. actually lived in Washington, D.C., the archdiocese, when he was the archbishop there. And it was found out just a, a couple months ago that, uh, actually less than that, probably like a month or so ago, that he was credibly accused of sexually um, abusing a minor back in the early 70s. And the, the Archdiocese of New York revealed this. And that opened the floodgates, because all of a sudden, the, the, the quote I heard over and over, and I said myself, was everybody knew about McCarrick. And it's true. Mm-hmm. When I lived in D.C., I knew about McCarrick. Mm-hmm. And I, when I say I knew about him, I had heard stories, I had heard rumors that he had groomed seminarians, that he had been involved in these homosexual relationships with many seminarians, many young men. Now, I didn't hear, and I think it was well known that he had also done it with minors as well, but now all of a sudden, people came out. You know, it was like a Me Too moment for the Catholic mm-hmm. Church, is really what it was. You know, Harvey Weinstein was the, the face of Hollywood, Me Too, uh, the Me Too movement, and Cardinal McCarrick became that face here in America for the bishops, that here we have literally probably the most um, respected and high-ranking bishop in the United States of America, and he had been involved in these awful, terrible deeds for decades, and yet nobody said anything. And it's impossible to believe. You have to just completely remove all reason from your brain to believe that nobody knew. that other uh, bishops, other cardinals, other priests they didn't know what was going on, and yet they did nothing. In fact, not only did they did nothing, they allowed him to continue to be a leader in the Catholic Church even after his retirement. I mean, I lived in D.C. after he was retired. He was, you know, lauded as this great uh, missionary for the Church, this great representative of Catholicism, and that started a snowball effect. Really, this revelations about McCarrick. Uh, now he, he got stripped of being a cardinal. He now he's, I guess, you just call him Archbishop McCarrick. Now, then, all of a sudden, about a week or two ago, uh, the Pennsylvania um, mm-hmm. Attorney General's office released a grand jury report about the activities of uh, in six dioceses in uh, of eight in Pennsylvania that revealed that there was a culture of uh, abuse, sexual abuse by priests of young people and others uh, for decades in those dioceses, and the response of bishops was just. Uh, awful! They did not do anything. They, they they shuttered these people around. They they shuttled these people around. Sorry, they they, they 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 wouldn't take action. They they didn't see it for what it was, and that was sin. That was people committing some of the most uh, awful, heinous, uh, heinous crimes against people, and they they did nothing about it. They seemed not to care. They seemed to care only about their own reputation and the reputation of the institutional church rather than souls. And so when this was revealed. It just showed how much this is still part of the culture of church. Because one of the point people in recent years for uh, the, the Catholic Church, one of the most high-ranking, is the the successor to Cardinal McCarrick in Washington D.C., Cardinal Whirl, who was in Pittsburgh during many what many of the stuff going on. It's been shown that he also moved people around, didn't really respond to it as he should, and now there's a call. Um, which I joined to have him step down from his position as Archbishop of D.C. So really, this is the tip of the iceberg, I still believe, because remember, they found that that, the grand jury uh, mentioned about 300 different priests Mm -hmm. who were involved in these abuse cases over decades long, but this is only six dioceses. There are almost 200 dioceses in in the United States of America. So if in six dioceses, we have 300 priests credibly accused of these things, Mm -hmm. and bishops who who fostered it and allowed it to happen. A thousand victims. My goodness. It just, what what is, in fact, they just just announced, New York Attorney General just announced, they're going to now open an investigation. And to be quite blunt, I think that's going to be even worse, because everybody everybody kind of knows that new york is is one of the worst of them all historically what's been going on there, so that's in a nutshell version of of what's happened um, recently to kind of mm-hmm. blow this up again from uh, two thousand and two to now today.
0: So thanks, Eric. That was a fabulous thanks. condensation of what we 're facing um, so in the Pennsylvania case we're talking over a thousand young people, so obviously unbelievable that people in a position to lead us into holiness to the exact opposite and uh, I can say I've, I could not read more than one or two of the reports that were published uh, because they're they're contrary it's not even just what one might dismiss as intimacy is as, as, as wrong as that is of a homosexual variety I mean folks I just don't read it because it is it will just dampen your heart um, now if you're like me, Eric, as I know you are a student and reading what other people are writing, some good things from bishops come, have come out in the last couple of weeks. Morlino's piece, I think, is quite good. Um, talk, naming homosexuality is an issue. I guess my point is, in the case of the Pennsylvania finding, it's only talking about those criminal acts. Um, we aren't even talking about consensual things. And again, Morlino Bishop pointed out that you know there is a network, there is some uh, serious consideration of, and they, they speak of it in different terms, lavender mafia and such that, that is in the highest levels. I believe Merlino's letters spoke of that. But I want to I address the question that may be on the minds of everybody as you were outlining that. Eric, in your understanding, why did this happen? How, how does this happen from a cultural standpoint?
2: Well, I think, really, in a nutshell, what we've seen is we've had a generation or more of faithless men in leadership in the church. And what do I mean by that when I say faithless men? I mean people who do not fear God. The, the Bible says that we, the, you know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we all need to have that fear of the Lord. And people automatically, modern people, I should say, they automatically recoil from this idea of fear of the Lord. Like, wait a minute. The Lord is my buddy, he's my friend, he Mm. loves me, why should I be afraid of him? But I think that's a a wrong perception of of who Jesus is, who God is. He is the judge of the universe. Yes, he is all-loving, he is love. But love hates sin, Mm. and love does not accept sin and allow it to fester. And if we have a true fear of the Lord, we want to serve him and we want to be faithful to him. Well, what we've seen is we see a generation of faithless men in leadership in the Church that have allowed this to happen. And so what, what I think has happened is, especially we see this, it, it existed before the 1960s, because you even see cases of it um, before the 1960s. But we see a um, perverse word for it is the flowering of this sin, and this idea that we don't care about what God thinks, we only care about ourselves mm-hmm. in the 1960s and, and following. And so to be quite honest, the, the, the seminaries became many of them, and all, we're always talking generalities, there's always exceptions and things like that, but the, many of the seminaries became cesspools of homosexual activity where homosexuality was very uh, acceptable and, in fact, encouraged and recruited. There's a, a book from many years ago called Goodbye, Good Men, mm-hmm. that was ridiculed at the time, dismissed at the time, but it's proven prophetic. Um, and it showed that many seminaries, they basically recruited young men. If, if a faithful young man who feared the Lord, who was Orthodox, loved God, wanted to become a priest, he was basically either not accepted or he was kicked out pretty quickly. I think we've, a lot of us who have been involved in the Church for a long time, I'm sure you do, Greg, mm-hmm. know of this happening. Mm-hmm. And then but people who were maybe vulnerable, maybe had same-sex attraction, maybe had hurts in their past and were susceptible to abuse, susceptible to grooming, they were accepted and they were brought in. And so we have this culture that exists then where all of a sudden now, you know, sin begets sin. And so whereas, you know, you mentioned it how criminal behavior versus, you know, consensual behavior as you, you know, were suggesting, it's all sin. And what happens is sin begets sin. And so we, we see, you said it very clearly, like pornography. Somebody gets involved in pornography just a little bit, maybe some soft corn porn, porn maybe just a little bit on the Internet, something like that. And it grows and festers in their life if they don't really fight it with, you know, going to confession and, and practicing virtue and all these things, until it starts to become more hardcore, more hardcore. And you see, the extreme case was I, what was the guy's name? The, the, the serial killer. I think it was Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. who basically maybe it was another one, but pornography led him to serial killing, mm-hmm. and so. You see, this is a similar to what's happened uh, in, the, in the seminaries and in the Catholic priesthood and the bishops, is you have a situation where these men are, maybe they're involved in consensual homosexual relationships, and then it becomes, okay, now it becomes uh, non-consensual with, with um, young men. And I think it's a, it's a hard truth that people will be, you'll be shouted down for saying this, it's probably the most unpolitically correct thing to say, but it's a truth, and that is Homosexual men are more apt to be attracted to young men. And by young men, I mean post-pubescent men, uh, teenagers. And so then you get grooming of teenagers, you get sexual abuse, you get non-consensual, all of this. And so it's all these things happen, but it all happens because of faithless men in charge who put themselves and their desires over the, the, the will of God and what God wants. And so that's why they allow these seminaries to happen like this. Maybe they even want them to happen like this. Mm-hmm. Um, McCarrick was a, a perfect example of this because he was in, uh, you know, in uh, charge of a seminary for a long time, became a bishop, and he could recruit these seminarians, he could groom them. And I think we, we we saw that happen, and it just, and and the culture. When you ask about the culture, the culture is these faithless men. But then, let's be honest, and I want to be frank about this. There's part of the culture of the church itself that I think led to this problem, and I'm talking about. Um, you know, the Pope mentioned it. I don't think we we don't want to make it the only thing, but I do think a clericalism has existed for years, in which people were afraid to ever speak out against the Church. I mean, the, the saddest story you can read is when you read about the, one of the first men who um, came forward about being abused by McCarrick for many years. He was actually baptized by McCarrick. It was the first mm-hmm. baptism uh, the then-Father McCarrick ever did. It was a family friend. He was best friends with the Father. Mm-hmm. McCarrick was... Wow. And he groomed this young man. He started abusing him at a young age, I think 11 or 12. And the young man did finally get the courage to tell his dad, and his dad just didn't believe him. Mm-hmm. And think about how heartbreaking that is for that young man who has left the church and is no longer Catholic. I mean, I, I have a hard time having anything but sympathy for that young man. Right. But the, the father, I have a hard time being too harsh on the father either, because the culture at the time is, it was simply unthinkable. For a priest to do something like that, unthinkable. And so nobody said anything. And I think honestly, one of the reasons we have less abuse cases now than we did perhaps before the 80s and 90s, because honestly, I think we don't have as many close relationships of families with priests. Some of that for good reasons. Some of that because we've had a loss of faith in in our culture in general. You know, you, you hear stories from like the long ago when like you just let your boy go hang out with the priest and mm-hmm. stay overnight mm-hmm. with them. Well, nobody would do that now mm-hmm. unless they really knew that priest, like, super well. And even then, they probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And it's not because, of, like, against the priest. It's just kind of the culture we've we've gotten away from that, which is probably, frankly, good. But so you see this culture inside the Church of, we have to protect the institutional, in, institutional Church. The the, the 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 logic was, if... Pe- leaders in the Church do bad things, we have to hide it, because if people find out, it will scandalize mm-hmm. them, and they could leave the Church. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's the kind of the sincere, and I think a lot of the, frankly, the faithless men in charge, they were just doing it for self-preservation. But I do think a lot of good Catholics, they didn't want to say anything because they didn't, they didn't want to harm the evangelistic aspects of the Church, the outreach of the Church, by having a scandal. What we find is you know, what our Lord says, the truth will set you free. Mm -hmm. And so we never want to hide the truth. If the truth is hard, if the truth is difficult, the truth makes us look bad as the human part of the Church, well, then we have to confront that, because otherwise it grows like a cancer Mm -hmm. in the soul of the Church, and we get where we are today. Wouldn't it have been great if in the 70s a bunch of Catholics, including Catholic leaders, just spoke out and said, we're not going to take this anymore? Mm -hmm. It would have been difficult at the time, But we'd be 30, 40 years past it now, and we'd be moving on and probably doing a lot better in the culture and and, and evangelizing the culture.
0: So, Eric, we spoke of this last week. Thank you for all that and the culture that we are looking at now. Uh, And I might simply frame it as we've been emasculated. And what I'm not suggesting is sort of that mythical hurrah machismo thing. And and maybe this is a problem, too, is the rhetoric has so much forced uh, two huge different options. Like either you've got to be kumbaya, warm, fuzzy feelings and flowers, or hit them over the head. No. Prudence is is acting with the heart of God, um, w- with virtue. And uh, looking at these matters merit a response. They merit, um, if you will, an outrage, as Father Ricardo said. If there's not a degree of outrage, then, you know, we're not... We're not acting in justice and giving something that is due. There is a kind of outrage, and in a moment, let's shift to the direction of more than just outrage, because it should be virtuous. It shouldn't be wanting to hurt somebody. We want to work with that. But how are we meant to act? Because I think in the culture right now, not just the church, but the broader culture, is a misguided idea of toleration. And so in marriages and families in the world are too afraid, I'm going to say, to respectfully, with love, be bold about things that need to be addressed. There's too much fear in addressing these things. So I will say, when I read the article in Crisis Magazine on August 9th by the anonymous priest who spoke and addressed this culture, particularly to bishops, um, I was delighted. And I wondered, would that priest who you and I know reflect maybe the majority of really good priests in this country, it reflects that that angst, that frustration, that, you know, the fear of speaking out. If that's a priest speaking that, we all have to ask the question, what are those forces that cause somebody to be communicating this to have to do it anonymously? But folks, I just want to read this quickly again from Crisis Magazine from an anonymous priest. You can check it out at crisismagazine.com. He says, and by the way, the title is, Where are the bishops who will defend faithful priests. So I'm going to quote for a moment. If I may, he says, I now speak for myself and my peers directly to the American prelates, bishops. We can appreciate how you feel when attacked for doing what is right. We can appreciate the hurt, the desolation, and the immense loneliness. We can appreciate it because we live it as well. We live it when we preach a homily defending the church's teaching on marriage and are chastised by you for upsetting the people. We live it when we express how difficult it is to live with someone who drinks himself into a rage every night and are told by you that we need to get along with our pastor. We live it when you let our brothers mock us behind our backs over cocktails with benefactors. We live it when we are chastised for legitimate liturgical expressions, and our brothers who preach counter to the faith are given plush parishes and diocesan offices. We live it when our peers call us names and paste misplaced clothes. Quotes of Pope Francis on our doors. We live it when we see seminarians leave because a priest made an advance on them, and you do nothing about it after we report it. We live it when our family and friends part ways with us because of church abuse scandals. We live it when we are insulted in public. We know that it is difficult to do what is right in the current climate. So we have priests. Pastors, heads of churches who I believe feel this themselves. And um, obviously, if they are, we know that obviously in the recent week, lay people um, are experiencing, you know, church to me to kind of uh, honesty, uh, moments of articulating these things. And again, trying to be virtuous, trying to, if you will, do it in a, a way of respect, but to be very bold in these things. Eric, what are your insights of how we as lay people? Uh, maybe, as a result of these things, need to be more virtuous in how we ought to act, respond to these things, and act appropriately?
2: I think a number of things. First of all, and it comes across cliché, and I know, but prayer and fasting should be the foundation. I know you talked about it last week, and that, that's vital, and it's a mandatory requirement of the laity of priests, of everybody Catholic, to... to do works of penance like this. In fact, I think one of the reasons we're in this situation is because we've lost that in the church. I mean, we don't we don't do anything anymore when it comes to penance, fasting, and like that. And it used to be a, a core part of being Catholic. So we have to do that. I also think, and this ties into something you said about masculinity. I think we need to teach our sons how to be men. Um, uh, A lot of people I know notice when when some of these stories come out, they're like, how could that person, that seminarian, not speak out? How could he not do something when he was being groomed or abused or whatever? And I think the reason they don't understand that is because they don't understand the people who are groomed, the young men, they usually have a very bad upbringing. They don't have a father figure or an abusive father figure or something like that. They don't know how to respond in that situation. But because I had a very good friend, um, I, I have a very good friend when he was growing up, uh, the, the, the the good Catholic family, they had a, a priest friend, and later they found out after he had grown up that this priest was somebody who had committed some abuse. And I asked him, "said that never happened in your family?" Did he's like, he "Oh no, he never even thought about it that, that I know of. We mm-hmm. never, nothing ever happened." He's like, "I don't know why." I said, "But I knew why." Because his family was a solid Catholic family with a solid Catholic father mm. who taught his boys well. And I think any priest who had thought about maybe abusing one of his sons knows that father would have taken his shotgun out mm. and gone after him. And I don't mm. say that completely as a joke. I mean that seriously. Mm. Because that can be the appropriate response. if In self-defense, if one of your children is being attacked, you, you take matters into your hands and you make sure that it doesn't happen anymore. And so I think that's the type of thing. Like we teach our sons how to be men. If somebody, if if a priest or seminary comes onto them, the appropriate response is to punch them in the gut and get out of there. You know, there's nothing wrong with that as the initial defend yourself response. But that we don't really have that. So one thing I would say is the lady can do is. Teach your sons, particularly, and daughters, of course, as well, how to be ladies and how to be, you know, uh, uh, live a life of virtue and how to resist, you know, things of that nature. But because we know that this has mostly been directed at, at young men, teach our young men how to be men, how to how to be masculine men of virtue. I also think that, as lady, a practical thing we can do is I do think it's appropriate that we put pressure on the bishops to treat this as the um, crisis it is, the spiritual crisis it is. Mm Don't treat this as a bureaucratic, you know, um, shuffling the deck, let's do some more policies or anything like that. No. This is a spiritual problem we need to treat like that. So what we do is we praise those bishops, like the Bishop Madison uh, Molina, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, yep. uh, Marlino, okay. like him, who are willing to be direct about the matter. We praise those bishops. It's not just attacking, we're not attacking bishops, we're, we're praising those who do well, but then those who are not, like a Cardinal World, like a Cardinal Tobin in New Jersey, who are clearly part of the problem. We put pressure on them, and we put pressure on our own bishops who maybe haven't said anything to say, we write to them, we say, hey, I would like to know, what are you going to do specifically, specifically to combat this issue? How are you going to respond? When, When the USCCB meets in November, what are you going to do to Take this seriously. I want to know concrete steps. If you see a bishop in public, like let's say you're at a at a dinner, obviously you never interrupt a mass or anything like that. But let's say you're at a, a, a fundraising dinner or something, the bishop's there. Go up to him and ask him, "What are you doing?" Yes, it might be an uncomfortable moment. May, yes, he may feel uncomfortable, but frankly, he needs to feel. I, I hope every single bishop in this country feels extremely uncomfortable right now, because. From silence, nothing has been done, and it's not only that, but, but this evil has festered. And so I do think that the la- – and I think it honestly is a bottom-up movement, because we're not seeing it from the top down. So from the bottom up, the lady needs to say, we demand in, 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 uh, in uh, humility, but we demand faithfulness from our leaders. Mm-hmm. We demand that our leaders will be faithful. I mean, the danger we have right now – I wrote about this in, for an article recently – the danger we have is we don't want to turn into Martin Luther, to be honest. The time of the Church, the leadership of the Church in the you know, late 15th, early 16th century was awful. It was like it is today in many ways, immoral, just, just you know, venial, um, venal, um, corrupt, and all that. And so when Martin Luther said, hey, let's get rid of the the, the middleman as he would call it, you know, the, the, the leadership of the church, and let's just go directly to God. We don't need them, look how terrible they are. He found a very receptive audience in Europe. I mean there's political reasons and well and other reasons. But the reason I think Martin Luther was successful were I mean there'd been other, you know, quote unquote reformers before him that didn't get very far. Well, he was able to literally transform Europe because people were sick and tired of the leadership. And that's the danger we have now is that because of the sins of our leaders, we could have something. And I think a way we are having something similar happen because look at it. You said you want to be honest and frank. The, the, the truth is, if you look at the numbers, they're not good for the Catholic Church. We've had millions and millions of people leave the Catholic Church in this country over the past you know, 20, 30, 40 years, and there's a reason for that, and I think it's a, a lot of reasons, but one is the faithless leaders. And so our danger is that we don't want to fall into that. We have to keep the deposit of faith that our Lord himself gave to us, which includes the office of bishop, but we also need to say, maybe some of the men who occupy that office need to go. I mean, somebody like Cardinal World is a perfect example, obviously Cardinal McCarrick before, you know, they need to go. They need to be replaced with men who are going to be faithful and are going to see this as as a spiritual crisis, not just, um, just a, a, a bureaucratic um, mm. problem. I and mean, they always treat it sometimes like, you know, uh, the their CEO and the CFO got caught stealing some funds, so we need to make policies so that doesn't happen, make structures, change it. No, that's not what the problem here is. The problem is a lack of faith, um, a spiritual emptiness that we find in so many people who are, Supposed to be our shepherds. I think your analogy of the firemen and the arsonists was, was just spot on because it's not just that the firemen aren't doing their job, but a lot of them are setting the fires. Mm-hmm. And so we need to do everything we can to put pressure on them to, to step down if they're part of the problem or to step up, like a few of them are doing. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I would just say, though, we really want to see action. You know, uh, St. Jose Maria Escriva, who I have a devotion to, he has this great quote where he says, Love is deeds, not sweet words. Mm. So many of us can say things like, oh, I love you, or I'll do this, whatever, but we don't do it. And we see lots of statements now coming out from the USCCB, from a lot of bishops, and the only thing it's really doing is killing paper and, you know, taking up pixels on our screen. Until we see deeds, until we see them do something like, I would love to see, for example, a bishop come out and say, I want to see Cardinal World step down, you know, call out, it's, it's, Unfortunately, too much of the bishops have become an old boys club, kind of like the Senate, where they won't speak out against each other. And I get there's a certain point to that, because they are a brotherhood. They they are supposed to be a family, in a sense. But, you know, if your family member is doing something terrible, you need to speak out and make sure it's clear that you don't support that. Um, so I think, really, the basis of all this, our action, always has to be prayer and fasting. I think that will call us to do different things, call the Church to really... A point of revival. I think you know. You said you want to be positive, and I think you know. I think one positive thing I've already seen is I've seen now people realize I need to make sure I get my house is in order, and literally mean myself and my house is in order that we are living holiness. Mm -hmm. I've gotten slack. I have gotten um, Mm -hmm. a little faithless, maybe in my own life. I need to really make sure I bolster up my own family, my own parish, my community. I just saw a priest who's a friend of mine. He said that. He's going to make sure from now on he is going to wear his uh, Roman collar out in public at all times, except for when he's like in the gym, because he said, I've been, gotten lazy about not always doing that, and mm-hmm. I feel like it's, a, it's what I should be doing. Also, it's a penance, because this is a scary thing, but I don't know if you've even heard this, but just yesterday a Catholic priest in Indiana was attacked, mm-hmm. physically assaulted, and knocked unconscious. Wow. And before he, he went unconscious, the attacker said, this is for all the children. Wow. Now, note this priest was not accused of anything. He is he's, he's not involved in this at all. He just happened to be a priest who was out in his his uh, priestly attire, his clerics, and he was attacked. Oh, did not and hear so that this, story. This friend, yeah, this just happened yesterday. Wow. It was a Byzantine Catholic priest, and my you know my friend who's a priest, he's learned to go out, and I think that's a beautiful thing because my friend, mm. when by, my priest friend who's going out in that Roman collar. He is being Jesus Christ because what he is doing is he is saying, "I will be a symbol of Christ, and I will take the abuse if necessary um, for for those victims, those who have been victimized by the church, those who have lost their faith." And I think that's what we all can do. Um, in a sense, uh, we might not be we wearing clerics or anything like that, but we can do that as well. That you know, and, and as well, I, I, in fact, I have had somebody who got mad at me for saying we need to pray and fast because he said we're not the ones who committed these crimes. Hmm. Well in the Catholic faith there's a beautiful tradition of that we offer up our we, we offer up our penances in reparation for the sins of others. Hmm. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Right. <laughs> when he died on the cross, he was innocent. But he did it for us. So he took on he 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 took on a penance of death, the passion and death in reparation for our sins, and so that's Mm -hmm. what we want to do. So I do think there's a, God brings good out of every evil. I mean, the greatest evil ever is the crucifixion, Mm -hmm. and the greatest good ever is the crucifixion. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so it's like, that's what God does, and so I think even in this evil time, and we do live in an evil time, I think we're in one of those times in Church history that will be looked back upon as one of the real great evil times in the Church. Mm -hmm. But I think that's when God raises up saints, you know, St. Mm-hmm. Athanasius during the Arian crisis of the 4th century, St. Ignatius Loyola, or uh, Teresa of Avila during the Protestant Re- Revolution in the 16th century, they were raised up in, in a time of crisis. That's exactly what I think can happen today mm-hmm. is God will raise up saints. That will, that will be the response to the crisis, truly, mm-hmm. is becoming saints. And that's easier said than done, but that is how God responds to crisis, is he raises up saints. So our job is to respond to that call and, and, and be saints.
1: Amen. That was when the news first broke. However many weeks ago, Greg and I—one of our first conversations—was just like we we need to live our vocation with greater integrity, you know. And that that is a good and a grace that will come out of this, you know, embracing that call to sainthood, to holiness in a deeper and deeper way in our marriages, in our families, in our parishes. Eric, I just want to ask a quick question regarding priests. What words would you give to our our pastors, our priests? Um, advice, if you will, for them to reach out to their flock, for them to reach out to their brother priests? What would you have them say to their bishop?
2: I would say that they they are part of, as much as they might not want to be this right now, they are part of the group that is the um, Kind of the cause of all of, of all these issues we have now, that so many priests abuse it, and as that, they need to identify them with the victims. Of course, they're not guilty—the ones who didn't do anything. But I think, in a Christ-like fashion if they identify with the poor, and the poor in this case being the victims of sexual abuse particularly, but also all those who are victimized in the Church by the scandal that's been caused right. by people who wear the same attire they do, so to speak, that are priests as well, that have failed in their office. So I think if they, in humility, would, would identify with all those victims and recognize the pain, some people, many people will have extreme pain just at the sight of a Roman collar Mm -hmm. and they need to know that. And so there there can be no obviously triumphalism in the sense that I didn't do any of these things. That that should not be part of it. They should say, Yeah, I'm part of this group that has caused this pain and so therefore I take on this suffering, this this abuse, this maybe this this pain. I'm gonna take it on in my own life. Obviously they would be praying and fasting. And I think really just never minimize it and Honestly, be bold, and I know how hard it is. I worked for a diocese for a number of years. I know how hard it is for a priest to speak up, uh, because there's a real good chance it's going to cause a lot of problems. But they're called not to a career, they're called to a vocation. And their vocation is, imita- is, is, you know, being the image of Christ for us. And the image of Christ is hanging on a crucifix. That's what they're supposed to be. And so the difficult it may be to potentially lose their position in parish, lose your job, and here's the, what most good priests will tell you is, it's not that they, and it's is true, they're not doing it for their own comfort. They're not like, they're not priests for comfort in a comfortable place like that. They, they want to keep their position because they're reaching souls. Mm-hmm. And so that's a lot of times why they're afraid to speak out. They're like, if I speak out, I'm going to be shunted off to some, you know, nowhere doing the nothing Siberian when, I, when I can impact the souls in my parish. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is, is you don't that's too, in my opinion, that's too, I don't know, utilitarian, too practical, too, um, too human-based, too this world-based. I think God sees way beyond. Like when Padre Pio was accused of, um, you know, being a heretic or whatever it was, I can't remember, but he basically he was told, you can't exercise your priestly ministry. He basically accepted it and just said, okay, I won't. And he, but a lot of people would say, well, Padre Pio could have done so much good if he was out there, you know, uh, hearing confessions and preaching and doing all these good works. But he knew the most important thing was being faithful to Christ, and so he took the obedience of having to not basically have a public ministry, and look at what happened. Is he's had one of the most fruit, he probably had the most fruitful ministry of any priest in the 20th century, mm-hmm. and so priests need to realize that that if you speak out and you may get it may be as bad as you think it's going to be, mm-hmm. you may get shut down, you may get you know, uh, sent away. You may even be made false accusations against you, just like false accusations were made against Padre Pio and and, and our Lord. But God, the graces that God will will pour forth from that, I think will have more effect on the conversion of souls Mm -hmm. than any ministry you're doing today. Mm -hmm. And so I would just encourage priests to speak out um, if they know of things, or if they, you know, I heard of a a priest confronted, a priest in the Archdiocese in Washington recently confronted Arch, uh, Cardinal Whirlin and ask him about stepping down, and I was like, "Wow! I mean, that the power of that, the, the courage it took for him to do that. And I don't want to ever um, minimize how difficult it would be. Is just amazing, but it's 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 what needs to be done. That if we're going to have a long term vision." What do we want the Church to look like in 100 years? Not next week, not what our parish wants to look like in in our, you know, next year. What do we want the Church to look like in America 100 years from now? If we're continuing to battle this and hide this and not confront Mm -hmm. it, we're not, you know, what we're going to be in 100 years, we're going to almost not exist. We're going to have a handful of people. But if we confront it now, and if people die to themselves today and are willing to make those sacrifices today... Well, I think what will happen is out of that death we'll have a resurrection, and so in a hundred years we'll have a powerful Catholic Church in this country that is you know, revitalizing the country and changing the culture. But if we don't, do, if we don't die today, we're not going to have that resurrection later.
0: Folks here, tune in to Ignite Radio Live. We are very blessed to be addressing the theme, Roots of Revival, A Church in Crisis. Again, you can hear part one. We had Peter Herbeck last week at IgniteRadioLive.com. Very blessed to have my brother in Christ, Eric Salmon, sharing with us. Great insight, I think, in um, what we as people, how we can understand it, and, and how we need to be engaged personally and what we can do. And I even loved, uh, certainly, your speaking to priests, Eric, and uh, encouraging them to be heroic saints to accept, if you will, the iconography of Jesus Christ, that they're called to live in persona Christi. Certainly the Eucharist and the Mass is the most uh, rich source and summit of grace, but uh, to be icons of that beyond that sacred context is really where it's needed. And, uh, you know, I I do want to shout out, and I know we all do, to uh, regard those bishops and priests who have spoken. We're delighted as people are sharing these stories with us in the homilies. uh, A number from our diocese, and, and most notably Father. Eric Schild and Father Dave Nuss addressed their uh, congregations. And by the way, folks, what I hear them saying is, folks, you don't do it for a standing ovation. That's not the purpose. But you lean in courageously to communicate the truth with love. It, it is making an impact. People are dying to hear this truth. It's an occasion for them to connect with the truth of our faith and to grow all the more deeply in love with Christ. Um, I asked a particular pastor in our diocese, I asked him two questions. i, I got to be really candid with you, and I want to ask you some hardball questions. I said, number one, uh, you know, we've only been here five years. Are you aware of this Lavender, Mafia, any of the Homosexual Network stuff in our diocese of Toledo? And uh, he's very honest with me. We have a very candid conversation, and he said, I really am not. And he said, certainly Certainly not to the degree that any other diocese has, but he categorically said he does not believe in our diocese that, that it exists, to his knowledge, which is was really awesome to hear. So I want to speak to folks out there to be on guard against us being uncritical. Um, we are dealing with a relative small number. It is One is consequential, that is um, in a situation where they are contrary to their iconography of the person of Christ. One is a problem. And that's all the more reason why we need to, if you will, with loving respect, with vigilance report them because they're they're creating a cloud or a shadow over the priesthood in the Catholic Church. You, we can't simply tolerate that if we want to see souls saved. Um, the second question that I asked this priest is, why do you think it is the priests have such a difficult time often in speaking out about fundamental, culturally challenging truths of the faith to their congregation? Why is it simply not happening in general? And he said to me, uh, I says a fear of the bishop or rep- reprisal. What he said? No, it's just fear of causing division within the church. So I got to speak to that for a moment and say, if speaking the truth is causing quote unquote disunity, there never was unity. We're, we're placating a peace on the surface, below which is artificiality, below which is not souls being saved, below which is likely blaspheming the Eucharist because we're allowing people to live a contradiction to the life that God wants them to have. Ultimately. If we're not speaking the truth with love in the most challenging areas, we're depriving people of the abundant life. And let's just name it. Eric, you can name this with your wife and me. You know, we are challenged ourselves by things that the church teaches. Which of us does not have temptations that merit our self-control? Not one of us. We all have things that challenge us. Mine isn't homosexuality. I've got other things, but I face them. And I'm not going to erase that mark because I struggle with it. So I want to tell priests that. We're all struggling. In fact, that mark of sainthood exists so that by awareness of where we're at and its distance, the Church precisely has its value. The Church has its value to lead us from where we're at as a distance to that mark of greater sainthood. Uh, another point here, and I'm very interested in your thoughts on the subject, but um, a great model, 1964 this obscure priest named Father Mike Scanlon takes over this <laughs> debaucherous university, maybe college back then of Steubenville. In fact, you were told back in the day that if you confessed, all you had to do was say, uh, "Confess me, Father Five Sin. What have you done? I've been to Steubenville." <laughs> they kind of knew that that meant everything. Anyways, at the time, you had students that were mired in the entire the sexual revolution, drugs, the whole deal. Um, masses were sparsely populated. They were talking about closing the school, and Father Michael simply said. Give me total control over the university college at the time uh, if if you want me to take this position. And he basically said, we're going to dedicate this to Jesus Christ. We're going to dedicate the campus, not just in words. This is key. Not just in words. We are going to commit ourselves to the fullness of the human person God designed us to be and be a culture that encounters Christ and lives this. And there are a number of things that happen. Read the book, Let the Fire Fall. He talks about this. But in a very short period of time, as Jim Collins said, the wrong people got off the bus. The right people got on the bus. People came alive in the Holy Spirit. And arguably, Franciscan University of Steubenville has become iconic of transformation throughout the world. You were there, Eric. I was there. Many people we know were there. Um, the proliferation of life, an abundant life of the, in the Spirit, has the epicenter has been Steubenville because of one man's courageousness in saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This place will be about Jesus. And we believe people will encounter Christ, and they'll fall in love with him, and they will follow him.
2: And, and I think one thing, you know, Father Scanlon, you know, uh, a saint among us, uh, no longer among us, but he was among us. Um, Spirit, I think one of the, things, the dangers, yeah, one of the dangers we have as Catholics when we read stories of saints or stories like what happened at Studentville is we only see the good result. We don't really understand or or really comprehend the courageousness it took those saints to make those things happen. Mm. You don't think Father Scanlon wasn't uh, vilified, wasn't attacked, didn't have to go through a lot of roadblocks? He, of course he did, and it only, it wasn't like some easy trip. He's like, I think we'll be Catholic now, and all of a sudden they were Catholic. No, he had hurdle after hurdle, roadblock after roadblock, but he had courage that he didn't, he knew what he had to do, he knew what the Lord was calling him to do, and he just was able to go through those roadblocks with, with the courage of the Lord, with the strength of the Lord, and that's what we need to have today is courage. That, yes, Things will get dark. Things are dark, <laughs> what am I talking about? Mm-hmm. And they will be difficult. But we have the courage to say, this is what we have to do. This is what the Lord is calling us to do, and we are going to persevere. I think too often we want to go along to get along. It's like what the priest said about the unity, and it's it's exactly what you said. It's not true unity. I have a tendency to be actually very non-confrontational. It might not sound like it from this uh, <laughs> interview, but but I don't like confrontation. I want everybody to get along with me. I want to get along. But that, that can very quickly degenerate into a sin, where we accept sinful behavior, we accept bad things because of the fact we, we just want people to get along, we want to have unity. And it's more important that we speak the truth, that we have courage, that we are willing to say those uncomfortable things that maybe we, maybe people don't want to hear. And yes, it does mean some people will leave. It's Like what, what uh, the guy said, that you know the bad people got off the bus and good people got on. The fact is is evangelization isn't about, let's try to do make it as easy as possible get as many people in as we can. Evangelization is about proclaiming the truth, and those attracted mm-hmm. to the truth will then come and have their lives changed. Mm-hmm. If somebody comes to a parish and does not have their life changed, then there's no purpose in them coming. They, a parish, when somebody comes and they bring somebody in, they need their life changed. If somebody doesn't want to have their life changed, and they leave... There's nothing the parish did wrong in that case, or the priest or anybody involved did wrong. That person just simply wasn't willing to follow the, the dictates of the Holy Spirit and have their life change. And so until we have parishes that are willing to become life-changing encounters for people, we're not really going to get out of this mess we're in. And, and as long as we just keep a service, like, well, as long as we're nice and we don't, like, offend anybody, then we'll keep the numbers up, we'll keep the donations going, and things like that then nothing is going to, we're just going to stay where we are. We need to have priests and lay people who are willing to say, no, we're going to do what's right. We're going to speak up. It doesn't mean we're being jerks about it. We're not, like, pushing it somebody's face and saying, you know, whatever. It's what we're courageous about proclaiming, even when they'll call us all types of nasty names, they'll, they'll say bad things about us, maybe we'll lose our positions, maybe we'll you know lose our affluence, whatever the case may be. But if we're faithful, then I think we'll have results like Father Scanlon did at Steubenville.
0: So, folks, uh, we're with Eric Sammons, and I do encourage you to check out his site, ericsammons.com, and there are a number of excellent books there that you can read about. Some of them may surprise you, like Bit.com Basics. But, you know, he's written The Old Evangelization is his newer book. There's another one, Be Watchful, Resist the Adversary Firm, another great uh, insight, if you will, to the, the subject that we're talking about. He's got a book called Holiness for Everyone. Who is Jesus Christ? Christ? Christ. So a number of great books that are worth reading. You know, Eric, I think right now, I think married couples and families, and I'm talking those that are faithful, those that go to Mass, those that may even pray the rosary every night, those that try to create a culture of faith. um, I think many of us are looking for, we're looking for pining for people who are holy to rally around, priests who are holy to rally around, priests who are willing to lean into um, the challenges of the day and to speak about them. I mean, because in our heart of hearts, we we struggle in our own humanity, but we know that there's a truth there because we see our kids directly being strengthened or not strengthened, the degree to which we make our homes places of encounter. So I kind of say that to any priests or bishops who are listening right now, that, uh, We know that you were ordained out of a love for Jesus Christ. And um, to put it directly, I think now's the time to take the gloves off. And that means with love, communicate and live the truth with love without any hesitation. We have X amount of time on this planet, only so much energy, only so many resources, in a position of power for such a short period of time for which we will have an accounting. You know, we as parents, folks, you know, how long do we have our children? You know, ask yourself the question, how different is our home going to be in a pastor? How different is your parish going to be as a result of the commitments we make today? And I'm just going to say it's worth opening that up even for conversation among your members. Hey, folks, not just kind of easy, comfortable, feel-good sorts of things that we want to introduce in the parish or at home. No. What are those things that will open the door to a radical awakening to our nature in Christ that will challenge us to live this out more fully? We want that kind of leadership. And I think this is, you know, moments like this is why certain homilies and certain bishops are standing out, because I think people, you know, people are are wanting it straightforward, all the things that you're talking about. Um, Eric, are there some prominent thoughts that maybe we didn't, that we did not address yet tonight? Um, a lot's happened in the last week, even, uh, the Pennsylvania thing. I, there's been a lot of reflection on that. You say New York's coming out. We have Morlino's letter. You know, Morlino's letter, I mean, if we're going to open that door, uh, what are your thoughts on Morlino's letter, which does speak of um actually i'm sorry i'm thinking of uh who's the cardinal spoke about pope francis recently cardinal burke Cardinal burke, burke. uh expressed some concerns and obviously it was along the, the similar lines of um we need to be living the truth uh in the catechism in canon law and there's been some confusion uh no small amount um that, that has to be addressed also. Confusion about questions of receiving the Eucharist, for instance, in a state of mortal sin. Right. Um, confusions about, and Ralph Martin spoke of these things, confusions about those closest to the Holy Father, Father James Martin, advocating what I call kind of identity reductionism, the LGBTQ. I mean, we would not speak of ex-murderers or adulterers uh, in, in a way that is permissive of, of them as a group to be embraced as sinners, Any more than I, in my sin, I don't want to be embraced, if you will, or or my sin to be tolerated. I want somebody to lead me to salvation. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Right, and it was uh, the elephant in the room I wanted to bring up, which is um, Pope Francis, and I, th- you know, he came out with a letter I think a day or two ago uh, addressing the crisis, and really it was disappointing because it, it was good in the sense they called us to prayer and fasting, which is very important, but I think it, the, the problem is, like San Jose Maria said, we need deeds, not sweet words, and we've seen a lot of confusion coming out of the Vatican, and I think honestly, what we see is that there is. Uh, a network of uh, high-ranking officials in the church that are leading us down this this bad path and I think a lot of them unfortunately have the ear of the Holy Father and he needs to do something more and so that's why we had to really pray for him because the fact is is that he is the one who can really make the biggest difference obviously because he can really change things on a top-down level and can make it happen and so far he hasn't in fact he's been very disappointing he's promoted a number of people to cardinals who, who are part of the major problem. He's demoted people who are cardinals out of positions who are possibly part of the solution. And so whatever we might think of him, it, what matters is is we, I think a lot of our prayer and fasting should be specifically offered up for the Pope, for the for our Holy Father, that he might no longer be a source of confusion, but instead be a a source of light in a situation and really take action, not just sweet words, but action. And I think also, you know, as long as we see things like Father James Martin, as long as he is not only allowed to exercise his priestly ministry, but is even promoted and exalted in the Church, we know we have a problem, because he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. There's just no other way. I hate talking about a priest like that, but It's a fact. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He has led many people astray. Many souls are being led astray by him. And he's got a prime speaking engagement at the World Meeting of Families Mm -hmm. in Ireland this Mm -hmm. week, or I think maybe next week. And that's a scandal that cries to heaven. It's It's a true scandal. And so... Those are the type of things that we need to—as lay people, that's where we can get frustrated and upset, because we can't really do anything about it. We don't have the Pope's ear. We don't have the Jesuit superior's ear who is lying Father James Martin to run around and, and spout off his heresies and his evils. Mm-hmm. And so we feel like we can't do anything, but I do think that's where we have to really offer up our prayers and penances for the Holy Father, that he might— no longer be a source of confusion, but instead be that source of unity that the mm-hmm. Pope is called to be that source of truth because unity is always in the truth you know the, the, po- the papal office is a, um, an office of unity for the church, but as you said earlier, it is not unity if it 's not based in the truth mm-hmm. and so what we hope is then the, the, the Pope and those around would proclaim the truth about marriage and family life, for example about the, the, the sacredness of the Eucharist and about the evil of divorce and mm-hmm. things like that I mean the evil of divorce nobody wants to talk about that because because so many people are divorced, we're afraid we're going to sin. But divorce is evil. God hates divorce. And Mm -hmm. if we're not willing to say that, and if people in the Church aren't willing to say that, we're not really addressing the the fundamental roots Mm -hmm. of the problem. And so I think we just pray fast, do everything we can, do all the penances we can for the Holy Father and those in leadership in the Church, that they might not be faithless men, but faithful men.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. You know, a lot of people like to throw out the phrase, also almost as a disclaimer, not a hotel for saints. The church is not a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. To which I say, absolutely, let's live out that metaphor. What does that mean? It means we're coming in the door, sick, in need of somebody diagnosing and not just hanging out and drinking coffee and feeling good. No, I'm sick. I got cancer. I need a professional to diagnose me and to get me on a process of healing me to become a saint. So you know, on that note, folks, let's just be united here tonight in prayer and close in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord, we avail our hearts and our minds to you. We are sinners and we need you, God, and we praise you for your Son, Jesus, who gives us his church to encounter you more fully and to be overflowing your grace to others, to more fully encounter you and live in unity with you forever. Flood us all virtue to do this. For the Speak glory of your name, through Christ our Lord. Amen.